So um, I'm trying to do what I can. Uh, Doc, something happened here. What I have no, I thought no. Hold. <coughs> Sorry, we just. I hope that's working. I'm not sure that it is, but um, one of the major themes of the Odyssey is language. Odysseus is a very different kind of hero from Achilles, and one of the major qualities that distinguishes him from Achilles as a hero is what he can do with language and how much it helps him um, navigate his world to interact in a, in a, in a actually in a spirit of prudence. I can't be more precise than that. That'll make sense, more sense as we go along. But anyway, the, one of the themes that, that runs through all of these works is language, how well people use it. And what, what we've seen early on, I, I wish we could put the whole tradition together again, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and you, we can't, but is that very, very generally, people don't read very well, they don't listen very well, they don't hear. Um, and the poets, Homer and Virgil and Dante, are really clear in helping us to see how important words are, what people do with words, how they help them to understand. So, And there's a musical aspect to poetry that we don't see as clearly um, in our age. And we're reading books in translation, so we're going to lose some of that musical aspect. But I want to try to keep it alive. So two of the things that we're doing with lyrics is um, is reading small poems for their musical aspect and, um, and, and small poems that, that have something to do with revealing Christ or the work of Christ in, in the world in, in a small way. So I, the major aim of the course, this I don't like calling it a course, the major aim of our work together is to, is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. So almost all the poems have to do with some revelation about Christ, some experience of him in the natural order. Um, they're very brief, so they're a way of just complementing what we're doing with the lyric. Appointed times. Where's Don? He's recruited out there. Oh. Um, Fran, so glad to see you. I don't know about your friend, though. Yeah, well, we're bad influence. We're sorry. No. Um, help yourselves. We, we're just getting going. Um, I think Suzanne will probably have a couple of handouts. I don't, because I don't see them over there. But yeah, there is. There, okay. <coughs> Does everybody know Fran? Do you all? Everybody Fran, should know. <laughs> do you want to take a second to introduce yourself? Because we, Belinda's a newcomer, so she's okay. here. I don't think you know Kathy from an. But do you? No. No. Hi. No. Two Kathys. Oh. But, oh Kathy, where? Which one? Oh, hi, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Kathy. And I'm Fran. Fran, introduce yourself. Go ahead. 
Uh, they know Don? No. They, Don, Don has been sitting here for the last yeah. couple of weeks. He's just joined us. Um, yeah, um, we're, we're, we've been here for quite a while. A long time. I can't remember how many years. We've lived in Texas for about 40 years or more. 43 years. Anyway. Um, what do I say? That's all. She's my friend, so you can't go wrong. <laughs> yeah, she's my friend. I was just... Um, Doc, do you have... I don't know if... Okay. For the sake of Fran and, and Belinda, um, Fran, what I was just kind of <coughs> describing to Belinda, what we do, we start with a prayer, and I ask people for prayers, she listening. Be still for a second. Are you? Um, we start with prayers, and and then I read a small lyric because one of the aims of what I'm doing is to is to show that there's something in poetry that we don't find anywhere else. That the poets are traditionally have always been looked at as seers or prophets or what the Latins called vates. Um, the small lyric poems all have to do with some revelation of Christ in the natural order. She's not listening to me. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm listening. I'm listening. And um, it also helps us to hear a musical aspect of poetry that, that we don't hear. And I spoke just a little bit about that. One of the functions of the music is that it relaxes the critical mind. It, it softens it so that the, the mind is more open. Here, let me put it even differently. The, the modern scientific mind tends to work in abstractions, ideas, clear, distinct, that's Descartes, clear, distinct ideas. We, we have a clarity to the ideas in our mind. But in some ways, that kind of reason closes us off to other things that reason should be able to get us to. But there's so much in our world working against that. Poetry softens that critical edge and opens reason to other things. So in poetry, the emotions and the mind are hopefully, in really good poets, are brought together to experience the world in a different way. It's one of the things that goes on in poetry. And I've said before, in poetry, we're not reading for ideas. We're re-entering the world as we know it in our bodies. That's the way, if you go to a movie, you're, you're, not, you're not reading a discourse, you're not, in a, you're not dealing with a thesis, you're returning to the world as we experience. So the kind of knowledge it gives us is knowledge by experience. We re-enter the world. But the good poets take us back to the world to help us see things we ordinarily don't see in our world. So that's pretty much what we're doing. We're and the whole aim of the course is to try to find Christ in the natural order. I began today saying, one of the central calls of our church has always been to bring um, nature and grace together, faith and reason, the natural world and the world of faith. In our world today, we've become so Protestantized that that whole natural order has been removed. We've lost our way into the natural order. Benedict, in one of his um, addresses at Regensburg, um, spoke directly of that topic. He, he expressed his concern that in the modern world, particularly the fundamentalist part of it, we've lost 
any sense of the logos, of the word in nature. Nature's blighted. It's, it's, for the Protestant mind, largely, it's depraved. So we don't have reference points in the natural world anymore. We've lost our way. To go back to these poets is to find our way back into the natural order. And hopefully, if we do, to bring a richer experience to our faith, to enrich our faith, so that we can answer the church's call to bring faith and reason together. That's what we're doing, basically, in a nutshell. Okay, so let's start, because I want to, we're already a little bit late. Let's, um, can you pull out the jo Joya poem words? <clears throat> Very interestingly, Dana Joya, I, w one of the griefs I have as a person, it's a, it's a pretty deep grief, we don't have many Catholic writers, artists, in the modern world, and, I'm, and, and writers particularly. There are some painters, some musicians, but it's rare to find poets today. Um, I, I think there's a reason for that, but it has to do with what I just said, actually. But Dana Joy is a Catholic writer. He was um, chosen by Bush to head the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, and when he um, headed that agency, he, he took as one of his first tasks was to take literature to the ghettos. He took Shakespeare to the streets. And he had a remarkable success taking Shakespeare to the streets, to the ghettos, the inner cities. Um, he, he's a, so he's been very active civically, but he's a poet. Primarily, I mean, that's what he does. He's known as a poet. He's a, um, really a good contemporary poet. One of the major themes of the Odyssey, as I said a minute ago, is language, what Odysseus is going to do with language. So I thought it was appropriate to take one of Joya's poems that has to do with words. Because remember, through the whole course, I'm constantly trying to, to underscore the relationship between words and the Word. Um, John says, in the beginning was the Word. Christ is the means of all creation. If he is, we should be able to find him in nature far more than we do. Can we do that without words? I don't believe we can. And I've given that example. If, if you put a young girl in a closet when she's first born and open the doors when she's 20, how much of the world can she see if she's not learned to use language? She'll almost be blind. She won't be able to distinct. What will she see? And I hope that is sufficiently mysterious. She won't have the means of distinguishing things. What will be the difference between a tree and a cloud to her since she won't have a word to, to say tree and cloud? What will she do? I mean, that'll be a, a, a dark cave blinding experience, I would assume. We can't make our way into the world without words. It's going to be one of the central themes of the Odyssey. So, <coughs> Joy has written this poem. <coughs> Excuse me. Words by Dana Joy. The world does not need words. It articulates itself in sunlight, leaves, and shadows. The stones in the path are no less real for lying uncatalogued and uncounted. The fluent leaves speak only the dialect of pure being. The kiss is still fully itself though no words were spoken. And one word transforms it into something less or other, <clears throat> illicit, chaste, perfunctory, conjugal, covert. 
Sometimes we make a thing less than it is by using words. Even calling it a kiss betrays the fluster of hands glancing the skin or gripping the shoulder, the slow arching of neck or knee, the silent touching of tongues. Yet the stones remain less real to those who cannot name them or read the mute syllables graven in silica. To see a red stone is less than seeing it as jasper, metamorphic quartz cousin to the flint of the Kiowa, carved as arrowheads. To name is to know and remember. Sunlight needs no praise piercing the rain clouds, painting the rocks and leaves with light, then dissolving each lucent droplet back into the clouds that engendered it. The daylight needs no praise, and so we praise it always, greater than ourselves and all the airy words we summon. In, in some ways, words are less than the being of everything. This poem actually reminds me of a Hopkins poem. I'm going I'm I'm to bring the Hopkins. We already did. Remember the wind tugger? It's one of the, I think it's probably one of the, I've read it a number of times through this group. It's Hopkins' description of the wind hover. Remember when he flies through the air, and then there's a moment when he hovers. He masters the wind. And in that moment, Hopkins sees the bird participating in the crucifixion. It's an image of, of that moment. So he finds the crucifixion in the work of a farmer and the fire, if you remember the poem. There's another poem called Kingfisher's Catch Fire that I'm reminded of when I read this going, and I'll bring it. Because in that poem, Hopkins makes clear that everything in nature speaks itself. A kingfisher, a stone. And in all, they all reveal Christ. <coughs> so here he's saying, there's a being greater than words. The daylight needs no praise. We praise it always. Greater than ourselves and all the airy words we summon. Remember before, up above, he says, um, the stones on the path are no less real for lying uncatalogued and uncounted. The fluent leaves speak only the dialect of pure being. Each thing, in Thomas's universe, St. Thomas's universe, the universe was created by a God of love. Everything in nature, whatever action it performed, it could be a molecule, it could be a leaf, it could be a dog. Everything was directed by love towards its own end. That was the Christian universe up until the scientific revolution. So there was nothing in the universe that wasn't motivated by love. And each thing was a subject in it. We look at things and make them objects when we see them, right? A thing, a person. We tend to objectify other people too much. It's hard for us to enter into another person to experience them as a subject in his or her own right. <coughs> Marriages are meant to help us do that, right? So that it's just not another, an it, an object. We become one sharing each other as subjects. It's one of the great themes of this book we're about to read, that Penelope and Odysseus both have their own stories. And they're going to come together at the end. Um, if, if John was right, Christ was in the beginning, he was the Word, words are everywhere, Christ is everywhere speaking. The question is, can we see, can we see them? There is something greater than words, and yet, words help us enter into that greatness. Without them, we're, it, it, they're less, I mean, that's what he says. 
Um, so it'll be one of the it'll be one of the really important things here of what we're doing. Um, quick, just very quickly to make a transition. I want to go back to the Iliad to quickly try to pull some things together. Um, is Shafali. Shafali. Shafali asked a question earlier, and I want to be sure. I mean, some of you I know are here. Last week when we finished up the Iliad, did I, did I not touch on the meeting between Achilles and Priam when Priam brings the ransom and he kisses his hand? I can't believe I did not do that. Holy... What did we do last week when well, we finished up the Iliad? Huh? If you do it again, I'll remember if you did. No. <laughs> Don, you were you were you were here. What did we do last time? Now I'm confused. Well, you did talk about the meeting uh, the ransoming. Yeah. 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 I thought so, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> okay, let me briefly I don't want to come back. Yeah, no, here. Let me let me here. I'm going to do this very quickly because I wanted to make the transition anyway, but, but um, it's always good to repeat things. It's just, you know, it really is because we hear them differently sometimes. So, um, okay, remember in the Iliad, the Iliad begins with a ransom. Remember the Christ. Chryses, the priest of Apollo, lost his daughter. She was taken hostage by the Greeks. They used her. Women are used as objects. He brings ransom to, to get her back. And I, and I can't hear that word without thinking of Christ as the ransom. I mean, it's a little bit earlier, but it, it is one of the major lines of action in the whole Iliad. It starts with a ransoming, it ends with a ransoming. Why? Because Homer saw that there was this deficiency, some lack of nature, something wrong that had to be made up. The tendency of everybody in this book is to think they can answer it with money, with booty. That booty's going to bring it all back. That's the central theme. You all know that now. It's the central theme of the Iliad. Is if money's going to do it. He brings the ransom for his daughter. Agamemnon refuses it. So it begins with a refused ransom, right? Agamemnon and Achilles quarrel. Achilles withdraws from the war. In the ninth book, the embassy takes place. Remember, who are the three men that Agamemnon sent? Quiz. Phoenix. Good. And Nestor? Ayas. Good for you, Don. Good for you. That's good. It's good. Um, and Odysseus, remember, offers him tons of booty, cities, wealth, women. Um, and um, Odysseus, or I mean, Achilles' response to Odysseus is to say, I hate the man who says one thing and holds another thing in his heart. Because he knows, even though Agamemnon the king will give this ransom, that what's in his heart is very different. We know that from the beginning. He's a very, in fact, almost all the men in the book are very selfish, very self-centered. They, they do these things for honor to, to acquire all this wealth because they think it's going to enhance their identity. That's the great, 
Anything different today? I mean, I've been just beating you with that. No, it's not. It's the same. One of the greatest critiques of the modern world is the Iliad, even though it was written 2,500 years ago, almost 3,000 years ago. He refuses the ransom when Phoenix, his mentor, his father figure, tells him, take the booty now and go back because it'll be too late afterwards. You may not get it. And he gave the story of um, the, the, um, the man, I think it was Meliagros, who who was facing a similar circumstance and didn't take the booty and then after the war was over he never got it. They didn't make good on their word. And Achilles has that famous, famous line when, when um, Phoenix says, take the booty. Achilles says, such, such things I think I need not, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. And that represents a radical change from everything that's been going on in the Iliad up to that point. He has stepped outside the honor code, the tendency to identify everything with money. And then Aias says, it's pointless to talk to this man. He's pitiless. Let's go. He said, most people accept a blood price. You won't even do that. A pitiless hard heart. And they leave. You kinds are doing badly um, in the... Um, I think the 16th, 17th, 18th book, Patroclus goes into the war, remember, wearing Achilles' armor. He says, if you're not going to go back and at least let me go back in, because if they see your armor, just the armor itself will terrify them. And you remember what happened. Patroclus is killed. Hector kills him in an embarrassing way. And when Achilles learns what happens, there's that moment of profound grief he weeps. Thetis' mother weeps. Remember, she's one of the major feminine figures in the book, um, and she's a goddess. She, she and all the Nereids have that moment of a threnody, a lamentation where the waves are lapping and you can hear the mourning of, of nature. And um, then Iris is sent to Achilles to tell him to go back, to shout at the Trojans. He says, I have no armor. Thetis asks Hephaestus, the god of craft, to make the armor. He goes to the ditch, and there's that description, I read it, I read it, um, where he looks like a saint. The light is emanating from his head. And there's a description of looking at this, as if looking at a distant town with a fire going up. That there's this light radiating from him, as if a power has been given to him. He goes to the ditch, and, he, and with Athena, screams out, and 12 Trojans die. Now remember, before that moment happens, two things happen that, that I think account for this radical change in him. He acknowledges his fault. He's the only man in the book who says, I let everybody down. I read those words. Um, he's the only man in the book to acknowledge his weaknesses, his failings. Every other man in the book lives in his pride and refuses to admit his failings. When they meet in the assembly afterwards, Agamemnon says it was Zeus's fault. The tendency is to blame the gods over and over and over again. And he accepts his mortality. Accepts his mortality. Hector keeps saying, oh, if I could only be as a god all the days of my life, you remember. So the contrast between them is really clear. Achilles is the only man in that book to be truthful about his limitations and he's, um, and he's the only man to accept his death. So when he goes back into the war, he goes back in 
with a spirit no other man has. If you've accepted your death and you're truthful about your limitations, what do you have to be afraid of? And it's at that point, remember, that he gets the shield with the two cities, the, the, the eternal cities, the city of war and the city of peace. These are the two conditions of our life on earth. They have been here forever. They're going to be here until the end of time. That's Homer's view. When Thetis gives him this armor, remember, the armor that he'd been using up to that time was his father's. And it was given to Thetis as a compensation for her having to marry a mortal. So there's a divine aspect of it, but a shame. It carries with it a humiliation from a divine, a woman, the mother. So there's this injury that's embodied in nature, in everything in nature, even the divine order. It's hard for me to read that without thinking about Christ going back to the Father having been crucified, you know. And if he was begotten with the Father and the Father sees all things, how could the Father not have known that way in advance of its happening? You know, I mean, so in some ways it's just amazing that Homer could have had in intimations of all of this somehow. So there's this divine wound embodied in that armor. And um, remember, he gave it to Patroclus. When Patroclus wears Achilles' armor, that is when he looks like him or tries to be like him, he's killed. Hector takes his armor when he tries to be like Achilles. He puts his armor on. He's killed. So Homer's very clear that some people are called out for something. We see that line up with the Bible, that trying to be, you know, we often, I mean, we, we hear this all, we're famous for making comparisons, you know, with ourselves. At the expense of very often of becoming who we are, who God's given us to be, whatever that is. Each man is, is different. Hephaestus makes this armor, Thetis gives it to him, you remember when she throws it down on the ground, nobody can look at it. The only man who can look at it is Achilles. And I made the argument last time when we closed, he's the only man who can see the whole of things. All of it. Remember, the Trojans are too tribal. We've talked about this. They, they don't have a sense of justice. They make their families and their tribal, their racial identities greater than God. That's why they enable. They make the, that's why Prime, as a father, does what he does with his son Paris. Instead of saying to Paris, give the girl, give the girl back, the war's over. He doesn't. He says, we're not giving the girl back. Let the gods, he seems like a very, very pious man. Let the gods decide between us. So the Trojans can't see past family, tribal loyalties. And, and in that sense, they're blind to other things. So that in one sense, they see in parts. <coughs> they see in terms of a family or, or a race. How American is that today? I mean, look at what's going on in our inner cities today. I mean, it's just horrible to watch. Horrible to watch. So Achilles puts on his new armor. When he goes into the war, nobody can stop him. Homer is showing us what happens when a man accepts his death and his limits, his truthfulness about himself. And in this great paradoxical way, 
For nine and a half years, he's not been able to defeat Hector. He's not been able to help bring, even though everybody knows he's the greatest warrior. But at this moment, nobody can stop him. Goes back into the war, and he's almost invulnerable. Nobody can defeat him. And then we saw what happened. There's that scene with Lycaon. Remember the, the guy who would ransom? I just think it's an extraordinary scene. He had just, he'd captured Lycaon, ransomed him, and he came back and here he, he, he talks about him as if he were a ghost. Sorry, I, I, I wasn't planning to do all of this, but since you've got questions. Uh, there's that wonderful scene where he's looking at Lycaon and saying, why are, he, Lycaon's clasping his knees, saying, spare me. My father will give you money. He's already been ransomed one. What we see is the tendency of the Trojans, what's the word I keep, to bail their sons out. They constantly get them out of trouble. And they're enablers. I mean, they really are. Tro Troy, Troy is an image of the modern American city. It's the modern parents. They want to they keep, buy their kids out of trouble constantly. So how do they learn? And Achilles' response is, he looks at Lycan and says, why all this fussing? Patroclus was a better man than you. I'm a better man than you. We're all going to die. And I can remember, I, I read, I told you when I read this this last year, I looked at it and thought, if, if any of us were confronted with it, I want to finish a book. <laughs> you know, I don't want to die. Are any of us ready? To, I mean, to, I've got kids to raise, I've got my grandchildren to do, I've got this to do, I've got a book to write, I've got my job. What would happen to any of us if we were faced with this moment? Appointed times? <laughs> Appointed times? <laughs> where we have to accept our death. And the real question is, have we accepted it already? Because if we haven't, we're back in this. I'm going to go back to this. We're back in the world again. What? What? Can I think so? I think it wasn't you that called this for shadow world, or but oh. I'll go back to this in a minute. It was Sue. Sue, yeah. Um, how can we go on in our life the way we should if we haven't accepted our death? Because if it hasn't, it means we're going to be frightened, whether we admit it or not. We won't be able to do what we've been given to do. That's yeah. the great. How do we Hold know on. until we're there? I don't know. You're going to have to answer that yourself. <laughs> Hold on, because this right now is a review. Hold on. So at the end, Priam, after he, after Achilles kills Hector, Priam comes to ransom his body. And you remember, the funeral games were held, and the funeral games were full of quarrels. The, the book begins with a ransoming and a quarrel. Achilles withdraws from the war. The funeral games are full of quarrels. Achilles settles every single one of them. Priam comes back to the camp. He sneaks in with a wagon full of booty to ransom his son. And there, I don't have the book. I don't want to take the time either because I wanted to. I really wanted to get to the Odyssey. Um, he answers him. He, he brings all of this booty. He enters the tent. And the two men look on each other in wonder. This is Priam, this ancient king. And he kneels down, clasps Achilles' knees, and takes his hand and kisses it and says, nobody in the world has kissed the man of the man who killed all of his children. And they weep. He invokes the father. He says, remember your own father. And um, they weep together. They share stories of their fathers. And we see a, a tenderness in that scene, unlike anything we've seen with all the killing scenes before. And then there's that one moment where Priam 
says to Achilles, take all your possessions and go home. And then Achilles responds with anger. And I remember talking about that moment because to me it's, it seems to me critics misread that terribly. Most critics say Achilles is still the same man, look, he's getting angry again because he's this man given to anger. And remember we talked about anger. Anger is one of the virtues. Anger is the rectificatory. If you look at those two lines of emotions, we'll come back to them at time. Anger can get out of hand, but anger is the rectifying virtue. It rectifies problems. If you've got a burglar coming into your house, you don't want to take drugs at that time. You want to get angry and get him out. You know, there are times where the only appropriate response to answer something is to get angry and say, stop it, stop what you're doing. Um, he gets angry, and most critics look at that as a sign that it's just the same old Achilles. I don't think that's so, um, and I, I can't believe we didn't. I, I can't believe we did not talk about this. But in that moment, I liken to, to Christ with Peter, because Peter says, you know, with the mount, let's stay here, and Christ says, get behind me, Satan, because Christ knows he has a destiny. Remember, Achilles has already chosen his destiny. He, he grew up with the sense he has two choices in life, to live a long, comfortable life or a life with short life with honor. And it's not until this moment that he finally chooses, and that's when he f realizes his honor as a man, when he makes that choice. Um, so I think that moment when he, when he flares up again is a, another intimation of Christ, because he's chosen his destiny. Prime is tempting him, whether he knows it or not. He's already chosen. He has to go back into the war. Um, and there was that fight scene with Hector that I read that, that most people feel shameful. Remember when Hector says, everybody's going to think badly of me? He's more concerned about what other people think than doing what's right. So everything that was set in motion at the beginning here is reversed. The whole action, all the disorders that cause these things. Remember, what's, what's at the center of the war is Paris and Helen. Achilles doesn't kill Paris. They don't get Helen back still. He defeats Hector, the greatest Trojan. So the fo Homer's focus is not on this. It's on this other issue of Cleos this whole matter of honor and what it means. And what we see is this tendency to identify human worth in terms of material possessions, how, how unnatural it is to man, how corrupting it is to man, that man has this intrinsic dignity, he has this inner nobility, and Achilles is the one who steps outside of that code and realizes it. We, we come to see that there is this great dignity, this great integrity, this worth to the human person. It so lines up with our notion of what God did when he created us. After the Protestant Reformation, the tendency to look at man is, is that it's, he's deformed, he's depraved, he loses everything. The Catholic view is different. The Catholic view is that he's wounded, that we have this integrity, that we've got this terrible wound. And, and you can't underestimate the, the, the concupiscence, the nature of that. It is so overwhelming that it, it helps explain why the Protestants look at this as all corrupt. 
because none of us can answer that wound on our own. It's overwhelming. Our, our, the effects of that wound, we can't heal ourselves. Um, but the Catholic doesn't believe that we've been depraved or all corrupt. We've lost our free will. They believe we're wounded, that there's this dignity that we never lost that God gave us. It just was terribly flawed, wounded. So what we see in Achilles is, is this image of um, this right order to the soul, that as human beings we can fulfill this <coughs> nature. They don't understand it the way we do because they don't understand that there was a creator or a redeemer, but, but they, they, in the natural order, Homer came to show us that there is this order to the soul and that there's something going on in the East that's pre preventing humans from realizing it and that something was happening in the West to make it possible. That's what the Iliad is about. Now, let me go to where I wanted to start this class <laughs> here, just very briefly, because this is to, to, to get us to the Odyssey. Remember here, when Achilles, when Achilles re-entered the war, remember there was a psychomachia, right? You guys all remember that. All the gods entered the war, remember? And all of the, uh, all of the Western gods, the, the Athenian gods, defeated the Trojan gods. Athena, I don't want to put this out, you should have that, I think I put it on a piece of paper. Don't look for it, because I, I really want to go through this quick. Mm -hmm. Athena defeated Ares and Aphrodite. Athena is the goddess of wisdom, and, she, and she's feminine. She's the only god that's dual in nature. She's, she's the goddess of wisdom, and she's a warrior. She fights. She defeats Ares and Aphrodite. Ares and Aphrodite are gods of passions. Ares, the god of the passion of war, Aphrodite is the goddess of eros, of erotic love between humans. She defeats them both. Hera, who's the goddess of the heart, of marriages, defeats Artemis, the virgin, the, the, the feminine who's not entered into the marital state. So in some sense has not completed itself. Hera overcomes her. Um, Hephaestus overcomes the river. The only gods that have a standoff are Poseidon and Apollo, and they, they agree to part their ways. So I said that what happens, interestingly, <coughs> at this moment, it's an amazing mystery. I mean, this is an extraordinary moment. <coughs> what Homer shows us <coughs> is that something happens in the West that does not happen in the East. That, um, how to put this? Um, we see the superiority, the su supremacy of reason over the appetites, of cognition over the emotions, the rational over the appetitive, right? In the Achaean gods, the, Athene is the wisdom, Hera is the god of the heart, that is law, marriage, the marital conventions that are a product of reason. So that we, we see the victory of the rational over the appetitive, the cognitive over the emotions. The Trojans tend to see the divine in terms of passions, emotions. Not so the West, and it's not because the emotions aren't there, because we saw the opening quarrels. And remember Zeus, I, I made a lot of this, Zeus is 
in some ways has some of the qualities that we associate with our God. One of the major ones is his impassibility. His impassibility. If God is complete love, there's no desire in him. There's nothing he lacks. We have desire because we lack things. God is impassable. He doesn't feel the way we do. He is com love is completed him. Love is at rest. And there's that there's that passage we went over where where remember when Athena and Hera were going to go back into the war and, and Zeus responds to them and says to both of the women, get back here. He says, I don't care how you feel about it, I don't care what your feelings are, get back here. Because the feelings can't determine it. There's something greater. Now, why all this? Because remember, there is in the West this sense of justice or a right order. Remember, I showed the Platonic cave that justice is giving another what's due. What's due. Uh, the, the beginning of the book shows us that people handle that problem by giving booty, by giving money, as if money, booty, possessions can answer that problem. And what we learn from the book is that's not true. There's something greater than that in the nature of the soul itself. And Plato, who learned from Homer, said that we can never give what's due to another person without minding our own business. That's one of the principles of the Republic. We have to learn to make ourselves better, or there's no way we will ever be able to give another his due. How can we if we're terribly flawed ourselves? Bind the kids off, the way Priam does, as if that's going to answer all the problems. So um, this whole question of a right order, of a justice, of giving what's due, is peculiar to the West. The, the, the book begins with this quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles because Agamemnon wants to use his power to take the, the girl away. We see the, the reverse of that in the East because Priam doesn't want to give the girl back. Par Paris doesn't, and the father stands by and the son and says, we're not giving her back even though that would mean the war would come to an end and people would stop dying. So what we see in Achilles is that this, this psychomachia, when he enters the war and all the gods enter and there's that dislocation, the dead open, the graves open, remember? There's a writing of the order in nature. And what we see, I believe, is that that's an expression of the writing of the order that's come to Achilles. When he goes back into the war, he's not the man he was. It's a little bit like, I would think, it's a little bit like what we experience in conversions or what saints undergo when a saint accepts his death and loves, you know, the way Christ asks to love. Um, so there's this right order to the soul, this intrinsic dignity that man is capable of. And that's what the Iliad is showing us here. At the end, the Iliad doesn't end with Troy being destroyed or Achilles dying. Achilles is alive. We know Troy is going to be destroyed. Homer doesn't show us that. That's not an accident. Because what's more important than the destruction of this, the human, according to St. Thomas, according to her faith, the human soul is of a greater worth than the entire universe, the material universe. The worth of a human soul is greater than the entire material universe. 
So what we see is the worth of this human, it's almost as if the, the human being has a greater worth in Homer's world than the gods. This, this extraordinary dignity that man has been given. Is that modern? Absolutely not. Remember, one of the most basic questions we could always ask ourselves is where, what our beginnings are. The modern understanding of beginnings, high or low? Low, right? We came out of apes or nothing. The beginnings for the ancients, high. We descended from the gods. So the ancients had this, this much more inherent, much more natural sense of this dignity that human beings have than we do as, as moderns. <clears throat> Now, that's um, just quickly, and then I'll stop it. So, from the Iliad to the Odyssey, we're shifting from the individual worth of a human being. And remember, Achilles had two choices his whole life, and, and I made the point, all of us have the same choice. We either live a long life with honor, short life, or, I mean, long life, a long, comfortable life without honor, what a, Short vegetable, what is that term? The life. Vegetating, like, what do you call them? Couch? Couch, couch, couch potatoes. potatoes. We can live, you know, that kind of a life for a short life with honor. Which means at times we have to risk. We have to put ourselves at risk if there's something that we have to give ourselves to. So a long, comfortable life or a short life with honor. Those are his two choices. And finally he makes it and we see what happens, that there's this splendor. That's why Homer describes Achilles the way he does when he goes back into the battle. We are shifting from this world in which we see the, the, this, this rare dignity to the human being, what a human being intrinsically has by his nature, to the world of marriages. And now we're moving towards a couple, towards a man and woman, and cities, because Odysseus is going to learn from all the cities he visits so that when he, when, when he brings home, when he comes home, will be something about the nature of man and woman as man and woman, and we'll see through the book that it will make possible for something between them as a man and a woman that other marriages don't have, because in the beginning of the book we're going to see three marriages. Odysseus and Penelope's, Nestor's and his wife's, and Menelaus and Helen, because they've returned from the war. It's going to be Ithaca, Pylos, Sparta. I'll come to that in a second. But we're entering a world of marriages. And remember what I said. Um, the Fran, you weren't here, and um, Belinda, you weren't here, but everybody, everybody's heard me say this over and over again. But the, ep the major theme of epics is a founding a refounding. And that's why it, it's amazing. I showed you at the very beginning of our work together how the prophetic tradition lines up with the epic tradition. <coughs> amazing things are going on in both of them that square up. One of the interesting things we take away from this is, remember I said, every epic has as its theme a new founding, a new order. That's what the Iliad's about. Um, that what we see is there's a new basis for understanding our human nature that breaks off from this honor code as men were living under it. Now, how many people in the Iliad understand that? How many people see what's going on? Actually see what's happening the way Homer sees it? How many men in that war see it? 
None. Over and over again in the war. Diomedes says, when the war is over, who's going to get credit for the sack of Troy? Agamemnon. You know, his king. Natural thing for a soldier to say about his leader. The poet is showing us something nobody else does. The prophets in the ancient world were constantly showing us something the other people didn't see. So I made the claim then that the Iliad and the Odyssey are founding works. There are beginnings. They show us who we are, and we've lost a sense of our beginnings. That, that the Iliad and the Odyssey line up with Genesis and Exodus. What are Genesis and Exodus about? Our beginnings and our founding. Abraham's called out to do what? To found this new people. That's what the whole movement of the biblical tradition is going towards. So in the natural order, there's this amazing parallel. The, the two things happening that, that answer each other. It's like the counterpoint in music. They just are speaking to each other in an amazing way. So here in the Iliad, we have a new understanding of our human nature. And here in the Odyssey, we have an understanding of marriage. It is the principle of continuity in our civilization. Take marriages away, and what happens to our civilization? What's happening today? So both works, both works have to do with the most important things of our civilization. And I said before that one of the amazing things, I, don't, I believe, I don't think any of us can properly understand what's at issue between Christianity and Islam without the Iliad. Because Homer saw 3,000 years ago fundamental differences between East and West that are below established religions and, and that make clear those divisions are still here. They're with us today. How many people understand them? On surface terms, I think they do, but deeper terms, I don't, I don't think generally speaking we do. So here at the outset, Homer's giving us um, the, the most basic things we need to see about our natural order. Who we are as individuals, our nature, the right order of things, these questions of justice, and marriage, the relationship between man and woman. And remember, don't forget, what was the war, the war being fought over? The violation of a marriage vow. Helen reneges on her marriage, she and Paris run off. The war is fought to get her back. So at the center of the Iliad, the war, the Trojan War, a marriage. Now Homer's going to shift from that view to marriages to look at the sexual relationships. And what we see there is sexual relationships are difficult. There are lots of things to learn. And what Homer teaches us about marriage, I think, is amazing. Odysseus is going to learn something that I don't think any of the other men learn in this book. And I'll, I'll put it even more starkly. Women are going to scowl at me here. If the Iliad is one of the severest critiques of men in the way they use women, because they do, you know that women are the at the, at the, at the top of the list of booty, shields, horses, chariots, possessions, wealth, paternal ancestry, guest friendships, how important they are. You know that because some of the men didn't fight because their grandparents were guests in each other's home. They take all of that very seriously. At the top of that list, women. At the top of the women's list, those who are most beautiful. Has the world changed? Go on, look at the two, I mean, 
was, is it, am I speaking falsely here? Nine out of ten commercials on TV show us a beautiful woman, and it doesn't have to do with shampoo and hair. She can be sitting on a car. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and I, Homer's going to be really clear, because there is this transcendent quality to women that gives them this power that, that distinguishes the, them from men. So if the Iliad is one of the severest critiques of men and the way they use women, the Odyssey is going to give us one of the most severe critiques of women and the way they use men, which we don't hear very much about today, but Homer saw it. So I think you have to have some courage to look at this because the, the archetype women here, Odysseus has got to confront some very, very serious things. And it's interesting, he can't go into them as a warrior He's going, to be, he's going to spend eight years on Calypso's Island. He's going to spend one year. In, of the nine and a half years that he's gone, of the nine and a half years that he's away, nine of those years are under the power of a woman. Be careful, men. <laughs> nine, nine of those years, and, and listen, here's the, yeah, he cannot get free to go on to restore his home without the help of a god. That's how serious this power is. <laughs> so, so Homer's going to look at marriages and, and what's below the surface, these, these archetypes, and, and what, what a man has got to confront if he's going to bring any order to his home. So, You think nine years is where the divorce rate goes up? In our age, isn't it fewer, Tom? Yes. Yes. More like four. That's, that's because the modern world is speeding things up. Let me, let me stop for a minute, because that was a lot. I'm trying to sort of catch Fran and... Thank you very much. Linda up here. Do you guys have any questions? Just. I don't want to take too much time. I really don't. I want to get. A, I want to go ahead. We've only, we've only got three weeks. In. It's just not going to be enough time. But we've got to get onto Shakespeare. So I want to get going. So, I, I if, if I'm brief in my answers, please pardon me. But when you say East and West, mm -hmm. what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, that's a good question. Um, Taken essentially is Europe westward, and east of Europe is. The Eastern world, as we know it, what you know, the China, India, Pakistan, Serbia, the whole world under the Muslim. Generally speaking, the, I mean, I don't know where Africa would. If you look at the tribes that are involved in the war that helped the Trojans on the Trojan side, they're from all over the East. One of the maps. Uh, I don't know if Kathy's got it, but if you well, look at one of the maps. I answered them by looking at yeah, the I, I don't want, Let me leave it there because I really want to go on. There's another map too that has, yeah. there, that's, if you look at that, you'll see that um, there are all sorts of tribes from the east and it's a great variety, it's a hodgepodge of races and peoples that have come to help Troy defeat the Achaeans. Um, the Achaeans are basically Achaeans. It's, it's western, they're still mixed, but they're they're unified in the sense that they're all Greek. The Trojans are heterogeneous. They're, they're everybody. So, so Greece is considered West? 
In this book, yeah. Any other simple questions? Fran, do you, I mean, you're, you're kind well, of... Well, you left me. <laughs> I didn't read the Iliad. Yeah. <laughs> I, so... At least you have an idea of right. what's going on and, right. and what, what's behind us and where we're going and how they relate. Right. Uh, it's interesting when, when uh, in the Odyssey, yeah. when, when people go into other people's houses, they're wine and dine and all that, they don't even ask their name until later on. Yeah. Is that the normal custom? For yeah. Them? Did everybody hear that? Uh, yeah. Say it again, Don. Well, this is a really good question. People go into other people's houses, they're wine and dine, and then they don't even know the person's name or anything about them. It's after they eat and wine and dine that they say, well, who, who, who are, are you? you? Who's your yeah. family? You know, yeah. Where are you from? Yeah. I mean, that would be the first thing I would ask. Yeah. No, it's a really... Why I, I, they it's do a, that? Huh? Why do they do that? It's a good... Here, I mean, there's a really good reason. It's, it's such a good question, Don. Um, the reason they do that is because... I t remember talking with Father John Roberts about this one day and, and, and trying to make the case. He was over for dinner one night, and I said, the Greeks are actually in a much better place to receive Christianity than the Jews. And let me tell you why. In the Greek world, you, you greeted a stranger and you, you did not dare ask his name because it would have been a presumption because that person may have been a god in disguise. And you know that, the gods are always coming down in. So there is this sense that there is some divinity, some divine quality to the human being, and in fact it may be a god. So to, to not do that would be inhospitable. Contrast that with the Jews. The, the Greeks have this imagination that the gods could be anywhere. The Jews, the Jews closed off the covenant, the ark. They didn't want to put an image in there because they thought it would be blasphemous to, to have an image. And I remember having that conversation with him and, and taking the position that in some ways the Greeks were actually in a more in a better position to receive Christ, given that disposition. Because when Christ came among the Jews, didn't, they didn't see him. They didn't see him. And there's nothing in their literature that prepares them. Whereas if you look at the Greeks in the natural world, something is already going on to make it easier to recognize a God when he does come. That's a really good point, Don. And it has to do with the way they considered hospitality. Is a, is a major thing that you did. Well, it was major because they were they were so intimately related with the divine order. Mm -hmm. They don't sep they didn't separate it the way the modern world does, uh, increasingly does. So, okay, let's let's start the Odyssey. Just a couple of things. The take invocation I'm going to come to in a moment. The great theme of the Iliad, you all know right now is Cleos, right? The great theme of the Odyssey is the homecoming, nostos, nostos, from which we get nostalgia, looking back. Dante will take this, and by the way, I mean, just for those of you who've gone through this, Don, I think you... You were here at the beginning. Were you doing this again? Are you going through it all again? Were you here for all of it before? No. For those of you who've done the Aeneid and the, the Divine Comedy, you know that for Aeneas, and I read those passages from um, T.S. Lewis, C.S. I mean, uh, 
T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, in my beginning is my end, in my end is my beginning, to go to the place and to, dis to discover the... Know it for the first time. And to know it for the first time, those beautiful lines. Um, remember in, the, in Virgil's Aeneid, we get the destruction of Troy early on. It's described, so we actually finally do experience it. Aeneas has to leave, and he's told to go found a new city. And he discovers in the course of his journeys that he's, without having known it, he's going back to his origins. Because the line of Dardanus that went on to found Troy actually came from Italy. So in an amazing way, he's going back to his ancient beginnings. Dante picks this up, remember, in the Divine Comedy, because as he, remember, he goes down into hell, up purgatory, and then he goes into the heavens. Three quarters of the way through heavens, what's he doing? He meets his great-great-great-grandfather, and then he meets Adam, and then he starts meeting the saints. And so he's going back to beginnings. In my beginning is my end, in my end is my beginning. That Dante, this whole notion of nostoi, nostos, the home, to return to our home is to return to our beginnings. Dante saw that the ultimate home for us is what? Christ. Christ. It's to be back with the Father. He created us. He's our Father. We don't come home. St. Augustine, my heart is restless till I rest in thee. The ultimate home for Christians I mean, that's our nostos, that's our homecoming. So, right from the beginning, there it is. There is the sense of ends, that they, they contain our beginnings, that we have to go back to that. And Homer intuitively saw that it was far more than what we think. Going home does not mean going back to a house with walls. In the Odyssey, it means going back, like the Iliad, it means going back to a right order, that there's a certain order in marriage, that there's a... There's a, a way of justice, and I think it approaches love, we'll see this. I mean, what happens with Odysseus and Penelope when they finally do get together, to me is, you'll see, it's amazing. It really is amazing. So the theme of the homecoming, coming home, the theme of a new kind of hero, the two choices that Achilles faced were long, comfortable life, short life with heart. Now we've got a third, something we didn't see before. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. Long-suffering Odysseus. Long-enduring Odysseus. There is nothing that goes on with Odysseus' adventures, even when he comes home, that doesn't entail suffering. He has to endure. He has to keep going. He stepped out of that world of the Iliad, remember, when Troy was destroyed, that, that, that acts as if once we have all this wealth and sufficiency, we will be okay. Suffering is a part of our condition. We're going to see that in the three homes in just a second. Um, I want to read this. I gave you this for the, for the work on tragedy when we, when we get to the Shakespeare's plays, but take out this thing on the emotions. I'm going to come back to this, but I want to, I want to read this just for a moment right now. The word suffering comes from the Anglo-Saxon suffere, which comes from the Latin suffere. suffere. It 
should be on that sheet. Safari, Safari. Just leave it, we'll get it. Safari, yeah, yes. Means to carry up from underneath. Everybody hear that? I want to repeat it. To carry up from underneath. You all hear that? To carry up from underneath? To carry up from underneath. It means to bear, to bear up from underneath. And ironically, the word sefere carries in it, it means to sustain, to bear up. It comes from the word fede, to carry, from which we get fertile. Mm. Suffering is meant to be fruitful. We know that from Job. It's one of the great lessons of Job. That suffering is meant to be a gift for us. What's the one thing modern Americans want to do least with? Suffering. We want to do all of us. What's Christ call us to? A cross. A cross. Here, let me read this on the, on the back page of that sheet. We are told, this is from a, um, a French philosopher, it's, it's a lovely passage. We are told that in pain we pass to a lesser degree of perfection. It's inevitable that this passage should affect our interior activity. We have an awareness of what we've just lost. We suffer most when we lose things. Isn't that right? Whether it's our health, possessions, somebody we love, Suffering is usually related to loss, a deprivation, a privation, a losing of something. We know that at one point we had something and now no longer have it. But the very awareness of this loss introduces in us, as has always been held, a growth of consciousness which is not itself a loss. Consequently, there is born in us a new being. When Belinda, or when Kathy introduced Belinda, she said, here's a new person. My first response was Nicodemus. That means you've just had a conversion. You are a new person. This is at the heart, this is the heart of our faith. That that I just we talked to somebody the other that somehow, even though we're overwhelmed at it at the moment, somehow we have to learn to see that suffering is a gift to us. That if we open to it, if we don't, but if we do, it's a grace. Because it takes her, it takes us closer to the cross of Christ, where He, because we deserve it, He didn't. He did nothing wrong. In fact, the words this morning I heard they were so clear. How would, when He says, when when Father blesses them, He says, at the moment of His um, betrayal, He took the bread and He was betrayed. You know, we we always act like we don't deserve it when we suffer because we're so good. <laughs> Anyway, a growth in consciousness which is itself a loss. Consequently, there is born in us a new being, very different from the being we were before we began to suffer. My spontaneity is curved, it's true. We don't go on. Isn't that true? When we suffer, we don't go on in the silly ways that we, 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 you know, we're a little bit less innocent about things. We take things more seriously. My spontaneity is curved, it's true, but my reflection and my will come into play to compensate for what has been taken away from me. My activity, which has been up to this point instinctive, has now become spiritual. How important is that? 
My activity, which has been up to this point instinctive, has now become spiritual. Paul talks about it. The old man, the child that we were, who we have to put away childish things to become a new person. Somebody carrying greater gravity. We carry our pains with us. Hopefully they change us, make us more able to remember this thing. To give what's due to another. To mind our business, to be better people so that we bring to others is... My activity, which has up to this point been instinctive, has now become spiritual. The use that I make of it will depend upon me alone. Some people want to pass it off, get away, and go away. It will be up to me to decide whether or not this loss can be converted to a gain, whether we learn to use it to become better people. So in Odysseus, we have a new kind of hero. It's not a person at war. We're not in a war context. It's really important to see that in, in the Iliad. We're in a war, and we have time and place. We have to make our judgment based on circumstances. What people do in war is not what they're going to do in other situations. Odysseus has left the war zone. He's going home. Now what, he's got, now what we've got to find is, has he learned something about himself so that he can recover his home? Because his home is on the verge of destruction. So a new kind of hero. He, he's not making a choice of a long, comfortable life or a short life with honor. He is long-suffering, long-enduring Odysseus. He's got to endure. What we're going to discover is that Odysseus is Homer's image of, I'm going to put this out, I know this isn't going to make much sense to you probably right now, and even when you're reading it may not make sense, but I hope you trust me on it, and because you'll see eventually when we get to the end. Odysseus is a man of virtue. And by virtue, it means he's learned to live in the mean. By the way, Shakespeare is going to when we, that's going to be the that's going to be the virtue at the center of Merchant of Venice. Portia, who is the heroine, does what she does because she lives in that mean. It empowers her to do something she couldn't if she were at either of the other extremes. But she, we will get there. I mean, you'll see what I mean when we get there. Odysseus is there. And what Homer makes clear, if you, when we put all the cities together, you're going to find that they're all at some extreme or another. And when he comes, he always brings problems. He makes problems for people because he brings a virtue where virtue isn't understood. It's prophesied to so many of the people that he goes to that somebody will come. Almost nobody hears the prophecies. Because what we learn in this book is that very few people listen to the gods. Odysseus is one of the rare ones. He, he pays attention to what he hears. So it's a new kind of hero. Um, he's showing us, Achilles showed us the right order, this norm, that what a person can be. Odysseus is showing the same sort of thing, except in a different context. It's at home. And one of the most important things that goes on in this book is language and what, what Odysseus does with language that nobody else does. Now, I just want to really quickly um, look at the um, opening and then set out the three homes and then we'll stop for the day. I'm going to do this in two minutes. <laughs> Don't look at her right now. <laughs> <laughs>
I have a question. We started late. Uh, is, is it implied that Odysseus knows all about Achilles? Yes. Wait, wait. Sorry. What do you mean by that, Tom? I, I'm just saying they're, they're, they're not, they're, how are they related? You've got two different heroes showing up here. Three. Three, okay. Two, I mean, what, wait, I'm, I'm, we've got two, Achilles and Odysseus. Okay, but uh, does, I don't know why, I'm just, I'm just struck by the differences, but does it imply that Odysseus knows um, Achilles? I mean, I don't, I mean, they're not. They fought together for nine and a half years. They were, oh, okay. they were soldiers in arms. They fought the war in Troy. So they they were so together. They, okay, they, are they were friends before that. One of the things we're going to learn in the Odyssey is that Odysseus and Achilles quarreled. We're not told about the quarrel, but they quarreled. Odysseus is going to meet Achilles in the underworld. Achilles is killed at the beginning of this. He's already dead. We don't see him dead in the Iliad, but we will meet him in the underworld. He's going to learn something interesting about Achilles when he gets there. Um, okay, I've got to listen to my wife here. Two things and we'll stop. Um, take a look at the take a look at the opening. Very invitation, the opening. Once again, we see that we're in a divine order because it's a God who speaks to Homer. So that we, we know that we're partially in divine time. And as I said before, what makes time real in this Homeric world, this mythic world, is heroic action. When men are not acting, they're not in time. Remember in Dante's world, it's only when we love who are actually in time with God. When we don't love, we're like dead souls. We're not who we're given to be. In the heroic world, it lines up the same way, except it's not love, it's honor. So we're in a divine time, and that's revealed to us in the very opening lines of both poems, when Homer invokes the goddess for help. Tell me, muse, the man of many ways who was driven for our journeys after he'd sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Many were those whose cities he saw, whose minds he learned of, many the pains he suffered in his spirit on the wine sea he suffered, struggling for his own life and the homecoming of his companions. Even so, he could not save his companions, hard though he strove to. They were destroyed by their own recklessness. Fools, notice that fools in the first line. Remember, this is a metrical line. It's, it's, it's set up in the feet, metrical feet. So the first, this is the very first page. Do you, have, do you all have it? I have a different book. So book one? Do you have the Lattimore? I have Fitzgerald. Oh, here, Fran, I don't, you can take that back. I don't know if you can. This but, is Teresa's book. <laughs> yeah, here, it, it would be better to have this because it's. Thank you, Bob. Um, if you look, fools, do you see it all? Fools is in the first metrical foot. It's always there. It's Homer's way of emphasizing that. I'll come back to it. They devoured the oxen of Helios and they didn't get home. And then he goes on, this one alone longing for his wife and his homecoming was detained by the queen of Calypso, bright among goddesses in her beloved caverns. 
desiring that it should be her husband. But when in the circling of the years that the, um, that the very year came in which the gods had spun for him his time of homecoming in Ithaca, not even then was he free of his trials nor among his own people, but the gods pitying him except Poseidon, he remained relentlessly angry with godlike Odysseus until his return. Why is Poseidon angry? Because we'll learn when he gets to the Cyclops people, Polyphemus, who traps him in the cave, in order to get out, he has to blind him. And we learn that Polyphemus is an offspring of Poseidon. So Poseidon crashed the rack, the raft he was on. Odysseus ends up on Calypso's island. Now here's the story. I'm going to read one passage, and then we'll, we'll stop. Um, there are three themes here. He's a man of many ways. He's not like Achilles. We can say, if you line them up, Achilles is one-dimensional. If Achilles were to come home and find suitors in his home, doing what these suitors are doing with Penelope, what would Achilles do? Kill. Just take out a sword and kill them. Um, and, and probably some people that don't deserve to be killed. I mean, I think that's the implication here. Odysseus is a man of prudence. He knows the right thing to do under whatever the circumstances are. That's the definition of prudence, to know the right thing. That means when, when, he, when it's time for him to be a warrior, he will be a warrior. When it's not time, he'll be something else. So he's capable of all things. He's a man of many ways. So it's a very different image of a hero. So we learn first, he's a man of many ways and he's long-suffering, okay? Long-enduring Odysseus. The fools never got home. The word fools in Greek is napios. The word fools in Greek mean, means childlike unable to, simple-minded, childlike, unable to use language. That's absolutely crucial, and, and we'll see why. It's only because of what Odysseus does with language that he gets through this thing. And the third thing is the angry god. Poseidon is the one who's angry. Who is the one who is angry in the Iliad? Apollo. Remember the priest of Apollo, he sent the plague that started it all. So there's, there's always a tendency in man to do something that offends the gods even when he doesn't know it. It's a sign of our blindness that very often the most innocent things we do can be offensive without knowing it to set the gods off. That's one of the great truths in Homer's world. Those are the three themes, okay? Now here's, here's the, the, the structure, the plot. The gods meet in council, and they send Hermes to get Achilles off of Calypso's island. Okay? Now, he was a Troy, here's, here's the Trojan War. He was a Troy for 10 years, right? And we talked about this. Every epic begins in the ninth and a half year. Why? Because nine and a half is next to ten. Something's about to happen. Homer's showing us that an action is going to be completed. Something is going to happen. 
the Trojan, the Greeks couldn't bring the war to an end, and I, we, it's open. The book the story opens in the ninth and a half year. The Odyssey opens in the ninth and a half year. Odysseus left Troy. He's been on his journeys for nine and a half years. So here's here's where he is when the book opens. That means his son has grown up without a father for 19 years, almost 20 years. This is very much about what happens. This is so amazing to me. This is what happens when fathers aren't home. And more importantly, this is what happens when you don't have good leaders. I cannot stress that. I mean, when I look at America today, what's going on? What ha the suitors are all sons of fathers. Some of them away at war, but none of them have had a leader around helping them to do. So the sons are going nuts. They're all looting Penelope's house. So two fundamental things at the outset. All these men have grown up without fathers, and the men themselves have grown up without good leaders. A king, a, Odysseus has been away. So one of the fundamental things Homer's showing us is what happened, the disorders that creep into a world lacking male authority. So here's the structure. The gods send Hermes to free Odysseus from Calypso's island. He's been here for eight years. He was on Circe's island for one year. So for nine of the nine and a half years that he's been away from leaving Troy, he's been under the power of a woman. Odysseus has got to learn to come to terms with something feminine before he can go home. So it's one of the most important things here. When he leaves Calypso's island, he comes to the, the island of Scaria, the Phaeacian people. And here he tells his story of what happened from the time that he left Troy here. From the time that he left Troy, all of his wanderings, all of his adventures. So in the middle, in the middle of this book, um, Odysseus becomes a storyteller like Homer. He tells his adventures. Now this is crucial, and it happens before he gets home. I think what Homer's showing us is this. To tell a story of your life means you have to reflect on it. It's an act of reflection. He has to step outside his life so he can begin to reflect on it. So what happens here in the middle, in the middle part of the book, from books 9 through 6 through 13, really, through, through something like that, 18, I can't remember, we get Odysseus's wandering. And it's during those wanderings that we see him encountering the, all these people and these basic feminine, most of them, feminine archetypes, except the Cyclops. The Cyclops are masculine archetypes, and they're brutal. The masculine is brutal, the feminine are very, very different. And, um, and after he tells the stories, he goes home. He comes home. And then he has to face the suitors, the hundred suitors who are wooing his wife. And um, if you know Odysseus is a, is a warrior, you know that what's going to happen. But I just want to look at one thing to finish today, because it's he goes, so the, the book opens in Ithaca. He goes to Pylos, which is Nestor's home. And then he goes to Sparta, looking for his father. And wait, what we wait, have wait, here wait, are three wait, very Mark. different. Huh? No, it's Telemachus. Sorry, what did I say? You said he, oh. but you hadn't mentioned Telemachus. Telemachus, yes, looking for his father. 
He leaves Ithaca, goes to Pylos, Nestor's home, and then Menelaus's home here. So we get our images of three very different three very different homes. All of them are in disorder. All of them, even his own. How many young? I mean, it seems to me all of our homes, no matter how well we order them, there's something wrong with our home. There's, I mean, as Catholics, we believe we're in sin, so that sins are a part of what we do. We struggle to put them away, but. We live, in, we live amidst disorders. We have to try to struggle to put our sins away, to bring order to our homes. Um, I'll go over these when we meet, but let me just show you one passage because it's really interesting what happens. Turn to, um, we'll just look at one, one passage here. Um, when he comes to Menelaus's Home. I'm sorry, when it comes to Nestor's home, remember Nestor, Nestor in the Iliad is always talking about his heroic deeds. We'll go through this again when we, because it's really funny. Um, he's always talking about his heroic deeds. The two of them are together. Athena is in the guise of Mentes, mentor, with um, with Telemachus. This is on page 56. Book. This is book three. Um, yeah. Let me, do, do you all have the same copy page number? I've got page 56. The line number begins at the top of the left hand, 180. Mm -hmm. You got the same, because the Iliad had a different page. Okay, so we're, okay, I'm gonna give you the page numbers then. So on page 56, mentor is Athena in disguise. She accompanied him. She was the one who said, go see Nestor, go see Menelaus. Ask them about your father. Learn about your father. If your father doesn't return in a year, kill the suitors. Give it a year's time, but be patient. But see if you can find your father. He's trying to find his father. <clears throat> Nestor and his family have been involved in giving sacrifices to the gods. Interestingly, to Poseidon. So when they arrived, they arrived during the midst of religious rituals, sacrifices. Now they sit down, and Don is absolutely right. Everywhere they go, they're greeted. Um, something odd is going to happen with, with Menelaus's family. We'll wait till we get there. But here, they sit down. Menela or Telemachus tells Nestor about his troubles at home and the difficulty and how overwhelmed he is by these problems. It sounds just like a teenager with his struggling with his parents and wanting to grow up and all of the grief he has about what his you know, parent, I mean this is much worse because she's got a hundred suitors but so at the bottom, towards the bottom, page 56 then the thoughtful net, net Telemachus said to him in answer, O Nestor Son of Neleus, great glory of the Achaeans. It's all too true that he took revenge, and so the Achaeans will carry his glory far and wide, a theme for the singers to come. If only the gods would give me such strength as he has to take revenge on the suitors for their overbearing oppression. They force their way upon me and recklessly plot against me. No, the gods have spun out no such strand of prosperity for me and my father. Now we must even have to endure it. Then in turn, Nestor, he says, um, go down a few lines. Um, they do say that many suitors for the sake of your mother are in your palace against your will and plot evil against you. By the way, if you haven't read, you know that the suitors are going to plan to kill Telemachus. 
They're waiting in ambush. When he gets back from his trip, they're planning to kill him. So don't be innocent about these suitors. These are evil men. Um, who knows whether he will come someday and punish the violence of these people, either by himself or all the Achaeans with him. If only gray-eyed Athena would deign to love you, as in those days she used to take care of glorious Odysseus in the Trojan country, where the Achaeans suffered misery. For I never saw the gods showing such open affection as Pallas Athena, the way she stood beside him openly. If she would deign to love you as she did him and care for you in her heart, then some of those people might well forget about marrying. I love the understatement of that. Then Telemachus responds, by the way, Telemachus has been given to a little bit of despair throughout. Mentes comes to him and says, your father will return. Telemachus says, I don't believe you. And there's this one moment where he says, what great evils have come upon me because my father was probably died at sea and the thought that his father would have died at sea instead of in battle is a shame to him. Who does that sound like? Achilles, Odysseus, and Aeneas. All those heroes say the same thing. Odysseus, or Achilles when he's in the river, Xanthos, at the end of the Iliad, the river's going to swamp him, and he says, now I wish I were back in the battle, because the, the thing that a man doesn't want to happen is that he doesn't die giving himself to what he believes. You know, that the, the nature will overwhelm him. Telemachus is part, what Homer's showing us is that he has the same spiritedness of his father. But, and then Athena comes to him in the guise of mentor and encourages him and said, your father will return. Telemachus doesn't believe him. So there's a tendency in him as a young man to be negative towards things. And here we see it when Nestor says, oh, if only Athena were here, she, these, you know, she'd help you and these men would give up all their notions of marrying. Telemachus says, oh, sir, I think that what you have said will not be accomplished. What you mean is too big, it bewilders me. That which I hoped for could never happen to me, not even if the gods so willed it. Now let me stop. What's the irony of this passage? She's there. So what's the irony? Well, she's there, but okay, let's, let me put it there. Why doesn't she, Telemachus just said this. Not if, Nestor says, Athena, if she would only help you the way she did her father. Nestor doesn't see her. So he said, if she were there the way she was for your father. Telemachus says, not even the gods so willed it. She's there. She's the goddess of wisdom. Why doesn't she just come out and say, both of you, um, Telemachus, grow up. Nestor, you should know better. You're an older man by now. Why did, she's the goddess of wisdom. Why doesn't she just come out and say to these two men? He has to learn it himself. Why? <laughs> What would happen? So he can grow. What would, how would he not grow if she came out? I just want to be really clear here. How would he not? If she came out, how would he not grow? Because I think you're right. I think you're absolutely. But he has, to, he has to suffer. If she were there, how much would he learn to depend on her? Oh. Right. I mean, he wouldn't do it for himself. So the problem is an enabling one. If if she. If she comes out, wouldn't, if a god is mixed to you, isn't the likelihood is that you start depending on him and not be doing the things that you should be doing yourself? So she's the remember she's the goddess of wisdom and she's a warrior. She's not afraid to fight. 
So the, the scene is really wonderfully ironic. It's full of ironies. You know? And then when she flies off, they will see that it was Athena. But right at this moment, it shows ironically on both Nestor and Telemachus that, that neither one of them see. And, and it raises this question, how often in life are, do we find ourselves in hardships and without seeing or believing that God is doing something to help? Because we don't see him. Okay, um, I'm, when we meet next week, I want to go back because there's things in this open. The, the first four books are called the Telemachi. They have to do with Telemachus as a young boy growing up and the, the hardships that he's facing as a boy. The middle sections, which, which you guys are going to have to read next week because we've, we've only got three meetings on this. So next week I'm going to focus on the adventures. It's Odysseus, his account of his experiences at sea with all these archetypes, all of these different peoples. Because if we don't get to them, we won't see what it is he learns that he has to take home. Is that 8 through 16? I can't remember. Well, mm -hmm. this, today we're supposed to read from 1 to 8. eight right. Next week, 9 to 13. No. So, 16. Or, 16. 9 to 16, thanks to him. So f f next week we have to be up to book 16. And then we're just going to spend one more week. So I know we're going through this quickly, but we've got to get to Shakespeare. So, but next week I want to go back to this opening just to touch on a few things, and then we're going to focus on the adventures. What Odysseus experiences at sea. What he learns about himself and, and woman from these archetypes. Okay. <laughs>